0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. I want to give a content warning. We're actually going to talk about sex today, and we're going to talk about um, power from sex. And that might be uncomfortable for some of us. If that's the case for you all, uh, feel free to take a break to step out. Um, I totally understand if you need to talk with somebody afterwards. Sarah, our community pastor, is right over here. Happy to at least connect you with somebody who might be able to maybe talk through some of what we heard today, all right? Okay, now we begin with this. How many people have been told that there is a biblical definition of sex and marriage? A lot of y'all, right? Biblical definition of sex and marriage. Uh, I've also been told there's a biblical definition of sex and marriage. And I, I love when people say to me, Jonathan, there's a biblical definition of sex and marriage. And I say, what is it? Let's talk about that. Is the biblical definition of sex and marriage back in Genesis when Jacob is tricked into marrying his first cousin and then seven years later marries his other first cousin so he's married to two first cousins. Is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? Is that it? It's the biblical definition of sex and marriage in Genesis 38. Where Tamar's husband dies, and so by law she has to marry the brother-in-law, and the brother-in-law Onan needs to impregnate her, but he's afraid to do it, so he spills his seed on the ground, and God is very angry, and so God strikes Onan dead for spilling his seed on the ground. So is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? Yes. Is that it? I think so. Marry your brother-in-law, make sure you impregnate, do not spill your seed. <laughs> biblical definition of sex and marriage. The biblical definition of sex and marriage is that David and Jonathan, they loved each other quite a bit, more so than anybody else. Is the biblical definition of sex and marriage, David again, who power over, basically forcibly makes Bathsheba marry him and kills her husband. Is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? I could do this all day, y'all. On and on and on. Is it Solomon and his 700 concubines? Is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? And I hear what all the, the, the detractors are saying. They're saying, but Jonathan, you're in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament works for us until it doesn't work for us. And then we throw it out the door, don't we? <laughs> and then we bring it back when it works for us again. And so what does Jesus say about sex and marriage? All right, let's jump to the New Testament. Um, Jesus says, doesn't say very much about sex at all, actually. He says, uh, he says for those of us who lust, God eyes out. Um, and I get that. I, I do. And I'll talk about that later. Um, But again, if we're going to take scripture literally, there's a lot to take literally here, right? Including every single one of us in this room, at one point or another, needs to gouge our eyes out, correct? (laughs) Okay, but what does Jesus say about marriage? He says something really interesting. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And the context around what Jesus is saying is he says sex and marriage is so incredibly difficult and so complicated that it might be better for you to be castrated than to actually get involved in it. Legitimately. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, this is part of the reason that the Catholic Church has decided priests shouldn't get married because of passages like this one. So is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? Because if we're going to take scripture literally, then those of us who are not called to celibacy, which I really want to take a quick moment and say, celibacy is not a bad thing. And some of us are called to it. Some of us uh, find intimacy in other ways. And that is okay. And that is good. But the truth of the matter is, that's not true for all of us. And so if we're going to take scripture literally, Jesus says, don't get married, don't have sex. It's all super complicated. Just become a eunuch. All right? Is that what we're going to do? Is that the biblical definition of sex and marriage? (sighs) Nope. (laughs) I think when people say that to us, what they're getting at is they're getting at the Apostle Paul. And they're getting at the passage that I'm going to read to us right now. Because the passage I'm going to read to us right now is the passage people point to. When they say, hey, there is a biblical definition of sex and marriage. And here it is, it's between one man and one woman and don't have sex until you get married. So why don't we read? Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so you may devote yourself to prayer because when we're not having sex, we should be praying. And then... Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thanks be to God. There's a lot there, right? But this is the one that we hear about most of the time. Raise your hand and, and just make a noise. If this passage has been uh, you know, used for you to hear that like, uh, marriage is between a man and a woman and nobody else. Has, has have people heard this? Yeah, right, right. What about the, um, you know, has it been used like don't have sex outside of marriage? This one? Uh, uh, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, but what gets me about this every time, <laughs> every time, is we conveniently skip over the first sentence, and the first sentence says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right right off the bat. And again, if we're going to take Scripture literally, well then this actually works out in our favor in some ways, because it's saying either don't have sex or be gay. And both of these things are really quite all right. (laughs) Okay? That's the bottom line. Um, uh, I'm okay with either, uh, truly, and, and I know God is as well. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he goes on and he says, you know, Paul says, like, hey, it, 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 you shouldn't do it unless you're burning with desire or you're burning with passion. How many people have been uh, to Christian college? One, two, <laughs> Jim, all of our Christian college people were burning with desire and passion, weren't they? <laughs> all of them. Um... But, but, but here's the deal, and this is the thing. We don't necessarily take scripture literally because we take it too seriously to take it literally. And if that's going to be the case, then we need to break apart this passage in the context and the culture so we can understand what's going on here because I actually think, and this is going to sound crazy, I actually think Paul makes some sense. All right, let's talk about why I believe Paul makes sense. Now, what we have to understand first and foremost is that when Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, and this is a widely accepted, widely held belief, Paul thought very strongly that Jesus was going to come back in days, weeks, or months. Okay, Jesus was on his way back. It was only a matter of time where days or weeks were at most months off. And what Paul is saying is because Jesus is going to come back, and everything's going to look very different. And, like, you know, we don't know where we're going to be. We don't know what we're going to be doing. We don't know who we're going to be with. Don't have sex right now. Now, it kind of makes sense. Right? Have you ever, like, have you all ever been to a place where, um, I don't know, let's, let's just, let's say this. Let's say you're going to move to New York. You're in Indiana, and you're going to move to New York. And a month before you move to New York, you, like, meet somebody and you're like, oh, you know, this person's kind of cool, and you start hanging out, and you, you know, you get a little intimate or whatever, and you're like, but I'm moving to New York in a month. I've just complicated my life in great ways, right? Like, does anybody feel that? And all your friends are going, why would you do that? Why would you connect with somebody this way when you're moving to New York in a month? You know long-distance relationships are really hard. Like, you just made your life a lot harder. And you go, I guess I did. And then you move to New York, and try to make it work for, like, three weeks, and it doesn't work, Right? This is what Paul is talking about. Paul's not saying, hey, don't have sex for all time. Paul's saying, we're moving soon. We're going to be doing something else. Your time here is almost done. So don't do this because it's just going to complicate things when your time is done. Do you see where Paul's coming from? Paul cannot in a million years fathom that Jesus 2,000 years later is still not here, right? Paul cannot fathom that. He thinks it's going to happen very soon. And if that's the case, y'all be ready. Don't complicate matters. And I think that's a wise word for all of us. Don't complicate matters. <laughs> but I'm going to keep going. Because what Paul is doing is Paul is preaching to Gentiles. So these are people who have a non, uh, non, uh, tr- uh, non-Jewish tradition, right? So it's a, it's a different kind of tradition that they have, a different kind of culture. And what Pete N. says, who is a professor at my old alma mater, he says, Paul's thinking is generally this. Those Gentiles, they'll have sex with anything. That's basically where Paul is coming from here, okay? Now, I want to throw another quote that I've used before, and it's a quote from roughly the same time that Paul was around, and this quote says this. It says, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Okay, so right now what we have is we have a sexual dynamic. What is that dynamic that we have? The dynamic that we have is this. It's sex for instant gratification, and it's sex that is power over, which means what's happening at this time with Gentiles is that they are using sex as a way to assert and dominate somebody else. You see, if you had a concubine, a concubine is, is, is you know, they're enslaved to you. And so they have no agency. They, they can't consent to, to sex. They can't do that, right? And so that is a power over. That is taking someone else's humanity for your instant sexual gratification, okay? Same thing with mistresses, you can uh, have a mistress, but that mistress back in 2000 years ago, the patriarchy was real, they didn't have a lot of sexual say. Once again, you have a man coming in and using power for instant gratification while using somebody else and taking away their humanity. And then the part that I think is just got awful and I struggle with is that in those times, uh, it was commonplace to have sex with boys or girls, young children, and this is awful. And we need to call it terrible and awful. And once again, we have people with instant gratification using someone else and taking away their humanity for their own selfish gain. Okay, do we see that that is the case? That's what's going on in this particular instance. Okay, and so now when Jesus says, hey, if you're looking at someone lustfully, you should gouge out your eyes, I get that. Because what Jesus is saying is, in that context, Jesus is going, hey, we know when we look at somebody lustfully, it's actually going to lead to a power play. It's going to lead to us wanting to assert our power over another at the expense of their humanity. And I would hate to see that happen because I'm all about equity. Because I'm all about bringing people into an equal relationship. I'm not about someone using their power over another. So now this all makes sense to me, right? And so now, when Jesus says this, and Jesus says, cast that into hell, I get why Jesus is saying, cast it into hell. Jesus isn't saying, like, don't have sexy thoughts. Some of you are having sexy thoughts right now. (laughs) No. What's happening is that he's saying, don't use your power physically over someone else taking away their humanity. And that's what Paul is getting at, too. And so because, because we handle... Or because we, uh, um, yeah, I I just lost my train of thought because I said sexy thoughts and now I'm thinking sexy thoughts. (laughs) No. So what, what what Paul is saying is he's saying this is not a power play. It's all set up to be a power play. And he uses this line. He goes like this. He goes, neither has authority over the other's body. Instead, both yield themselves to each other. So what Paul is doing is Paul is saying when you are going to think about sex, when you're going to have sex, when you're going to be intimate... You got to understand. There's no more patriarchy now. The evangelical churches in the time would have hated Paul and would have kicked him out for being heretical because the patriarchy was real. Isn't it kind of funny? Two thousand years later, the patriarchy is still kind of real. We still do the same thing to women, right? And and so Paul is saying, "Hey, no, this is an egalitarian relationship. This is you giving something of yourself and having something giving uh, somebody having agency." to give it back, consent to give it back, and there's a reciprocity. There's a building of a relationship here. Now the marriage part. At the time when Paul was around, context is always incredibly important. At the time Paul was around, the only way that could take place was in the confines of marriage. That was it, because I just finished explaining to you what happened outside of marriage, right? What happened outside of marriage? It was all about power, okay? So in the context of marriage 2,000 years ago, this is the only place Paul could see this Happen, but yet, Paul is ridiculously progressive, because Paul is saying, like, listen, don't have sex. People are coming back, but if you're gonna have sex, I don't want you to do it so you can, you know, use your power against another. I don't want you to do it just for your own instant gratification, so that somebody else is just used and their humanity is gone. Because we are all fully and wholly made alive in the image of Jesus Christ, and when you're using that power, you're taking that from the other. Paul's not saying don't do this only in the context of marriage because you're going to be a crumpled up piece of paper, whatever you've been told, right? It's not that at all. It's have sex. Sex is good. Make sure that there's a reciprocity. Make sure there's consent. Make sure there's agency. Make sure that you're not taking power and humanity away from another made in the image of God. Do we get this? Do we feel it? Okay, we hate it. You know why we hate it? I'm going to tell you why we hate it. Because after Paul, and, I don't know, 150 years later, I guess really kind of hit it 300 years later, uh, we started adopting uh, Roman and Greek philosophy and making it a part of our Christianity. Okay? So all of a sudden this Greco-Roman philosophy, Neoplatonic philosophy, starts to become part of Christianity. And what those philosophies say is that the flesh is bad. The body is bad. How many people have heard that your flesh is bad? Right? Right? And we might hear that, and we might not think anything of it when we're reading it in our scriptures, but that subconsciously is going to stay with us. We're going to start thinking our bodies are bad. Oh my gosh, my body's bad? I don't know, what what, what do I do with this thing? It's not good, my soul's good, my spirit's good, and it's going to leave my body eventually, but the flesh, whoo, can't be trusted. Because the flesh can't be trusted, I need permission from God in order to know what I'm supposed to do with this body. With, with this flesh, because I can't trust it, we can't trust it, you can't trust it, right? And so what we do is we start to find ways or, or make rules for permission. I remember about 20 years ago, a, Princeton, uh, a, a priest from Princeton said that a crack addicted woman came into, her, uh, or came into his um, office, and she said, will God love me if I still smoke crack? And the priest said, yeah, God will love you if you still smoke crack. And this woman says, then I don't want to know that God. And I resonate with that. Because I think we are so attuned to feeling shame around our bodies, to feeling shame around relationships, to feeling that our flesh is broken, that we don't want a God who will love our bodies, right? We don't want a God who says sex is good. We don't want a God who says intimacy is good. We want a God who just gives us permission or doesn't give us permission. And so it's way easier for us to say, don't have sex till you're married, otherwise your body's going to be bad. It falls in line with an old philosophy that has nothing to do with Jesus at all. we got to rescue our bodies, y'all. we got to rescue the fact that our bodies are good. Our bodies are made for sex. Our bodies are made for intimacy. We are holy and beautifully made in the image of God. And that's not just one man, one woman getting married. That's all of us. Full stop. And if that's the case, then I think Paul, what Paul might tell us, will look a little differently uh, if he was to say it in these days. And I want to read what I think Paul might say. Paul might say something like this. He might say, hey, you are fully and wholly made in the image of God. And if that's the case, your sexual attractions and desires and actions are also made fully holy in the image of God. There is no more shame. But it also means you have a holy responsibility. To affirm the holiness and beauty in others. Which means you're going to start asking different questions. It's not about am I married or am I not married or is it one man and one woman. The questions you're going to start asking are these. Does this expression of sex or intimacy bring about a flourishing? Or does it bring about a diminishing? Does my sex or intimacy, does it cause me to, to affirm the other? To, uh, does it cause me to also yield to the other? Does does the sex that I'm having or the intimacy that I'm having, does it make the persons or the person I'm with, does it make them better people? Or is it making them worse people? Does it affirm and acknowledge the godliness of another human being? Does it do those things? And it's way harder to ask those questions every time we're in an intimate moment, right? Way harder. Way harder. What we'd rather hear is don't do it. Do it. Don't do it, do it, instead of asking all these questions. Now, in the same way, they're hard questions. And the problem is there's no blanket answer. No one's going to give us permission, y'all. What we need to know is that our bodies are good, God is good, God made our bodies, God made sex. But we do need to ask these questions in a way that when we're having sex or being intimate, that we're honoring God and the other people involved, right? At the same time, we need to affirm and we need to call out that just because we're a progressive church doesn't mean that anything goes. So if there is sex that is selfish, sex for instant gratification, sex for power, sex without consent, sex that doesn't affirm but makes one feel embarrassed or insecure or anonymous, that absolutely and completely goes against God's kingdom. Bottom line. So there is a way that we can have sex. And there is a way we can do it in a way that affirms what God has planned for us and the way that God has created us. And there's a way to do it without needing permission or needing the boundaries or needing the... um. You know, the black and white. There's a way to do that. But it's going to take a lot more work. Y'all want to put in that work? Y'all are like, nah, I'm just going to stay celibate. Which is what Paul said at the beginning. Now you see why. At the end of this, at the end of Corinthians, Paul says this. Paul says, hey, you know what? I don't care who you are. And he says it at the end of Ephesians 2. He says it in a couple places. He says it all over, Galatians. He basically says, hey, there's no male, female, Jew, Greek. There's no slave. There's no master. There's us. We are a new humanity. We are a new humanity. And we are a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And what a new humanity means is it's not just us and God in our mind. Our bodies are a new humanity. Our bodies are good things. Sex is a good thing. We are a new humanity. And in doing so, our intimacy should be a part of creating that new humanity. Now, I'm not here as a pastor to give anybody permission, because I'm not. I'm not here to get into your sex lives, because the last place (laughs) we should be diving into your sex lives is in church. Even though I'm doing it right now. (laughs) But the one thing I want to leave us with, if there is a new sexual ethic, if there is a way to go about life in a way that honors God, in a way that follows Jesus, my thought is... In every one of our physical encounters, or every one of our intimate encounters, are we creating the new humanity in the other? And in doing so, if we are, then I do believe we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity. And I do believe we are ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And to that, I'll go ahead and say amen. Y'all want to pray with me? Let's do it. Let's pray. God, life is hard and confusing. Sex and physicality and intimacy make it hard and confusing, even more so. And so, we pray for clarity that we might create a new humanity in the other. We pray that in every one of our relationships, we would have reciprocity with the other. That in every one of our relationships, we de- defer power to the other. And that God, when we mess it up, be thankful that we don't have to take your scripture literally and gouge our eyes out, but there is grace upon grace upon grace for all of us. And so, we pray this in your holy.